Well, church, I would invite you to turn in your copies of God's Word, if you have them, or on your phone, or you are invited just to listen along to James chapter 4. As we slowly approach the end of this book that has been very direct, but I trust very helpful, very edifying to us. I know it has been to me uh, during these days. I've entitled this sermon, Master of My Fate. As we're drawn to ask the question, this passage, ask the question, who is the master of your fate? And who is the captain of your soul? It'll become clear later why I've entitled the sermon this. We're looking in chapter 4 of James, verses 13 through 17 today. James chapter 4, 13 through 17. And I would invite you, if you'd like, to also put a hand or put a finger in Luke chapter 12, which we will look at briefly in a few moments. James chapter 4, verse 13. Luke chapter 12. I want to ask while you're turning there, have you ever had plans change? It's probably a pretty interesting year for me to be asking this question. Because I would venture to say that you've probably in the last year or 13 months or so had a lot of plans change. But have you ever been just stopped in your tracks by a tragedy or an unexpected event or even a, a death perhaps? Have you ever been just inconvenienced in a way that maybe cost you a great deal of money or a great deal of time or a great deal of heartache? I will say that COVID has been, for many of us, something of a, of a wake-up call. That we are not the masters of our own fate. We are not the captains of of our own soul. What this virus did was kind of strip us of a bunch of assumptions. I would, I would think that if a year ago, or maybe just last January of 2020, if I were to tell you, well, you probably won't be able to go on that vacation, or you probably won't be able to buy that vehicle, or you probably won't be able to see that relative every week because of a global pandemic, you would have looked at me like I had three heads. But now we know it's possible. The impossible seems very possible now after a year of all of this. We're tempted to operate under an illusion. We're tempted to live our lives under the illusion of self-sufficiency. We're tempted to believe that we can make plans, we can make money, and we can make time for a lot of things that are really a good ways out of our control. James today, he, he, he warns us of really the sin, the sin of presuming upon God's grace, living as if we are the masters of our fate and that God somehow owes us a predictable future. He doesn't. And we see this in James chapter 4. Let's look at verse, um, let's look at verse 13. He says this, Come now, you who say, 
Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and and spend a year there and, and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Would you pray with me? God, James is a book about wisdom. It's a book about living life under the world that you have created and set up. And that's what wisdom is, is living in a way that, that, that just kind of meshes with how you have set up your world and your creation. And God, I pray now that you would just give us wisdom. I pray you give me wisdom. Help, help us to, to look to your scriptures today uh, to, to know what it is that you are saying. And then, Lord, give us the wherewithal to be able to take it and use it and apply it in our lives. Help us not to commit the sin of thinking and presuming that we are in control. But instead, God, help us to be a people who have a Lord, namely you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, earlier in the book of James, it says God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. You remember that? Remember when we, when we cover that? It says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. How can we act, how can we live in such a way with our time, with our plans, with our money, with our future? How can we live in a way that is humble? How can we keep from being proud in our blueprints and our designs and our plans and our schemes? I think what James is trying to tell us here is that the only way to map out our lives and to map out our aspirations in a way that's pleasing to God is to submit our lives to God, to give Him the keys. To say, I am not the Lord of myself. I'm not the master of my fate. I'm not the captain of my soul. But you are. In other words, it's an act of pride to treat life as if it is ours to do with what we will. That is to live in such a way that basically ignores the reality of God's desires for our life. It's an act of pride to treat life as if it's ours to do with what we will. And those of us who are in Christ, those of us actually ought to know this because we remember from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 what it says about us. It says this, You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. In other words, when, when Jesus went to the cross, when He first lived the perfect life that we couldn't live, and then went to the cross and died the death that we deserved to die, what happened was more than forgiveness of sins. It was that, and we're thankful for that, but it was more than that. It was, it was also an exchange of ownership of our lives. We are no longer our own. We have a master. We have a Lord. And this this reality, it puts to death 
this silly and unbiblical notion that it's possible to somehow come to Jesus and have Him as Savior but not have Him as Lord. There is no such division in Jesus. It's, like an Oreo, it's not like an Oreo cookie. I love Oreo cookies. And when I was a kid, they came out with the double stuff Oreo cookies. Friends, that's even better. It's even better. I was having a conversation with my dad one day about Oreo cookies, and he said, well, you know, these, these Oreo Thins, they've got these Oreo Thins now, which I think that's just sacrilegious. Why would you ever, like, want a, a thin Oreo cookie? But he says, the, the thin ones are better for you. And I'm like, well, you eat more of them, though. It's, it's not better. But you see, what I used to do when I was a kid is I used to kind of take the two, the two little, you know, the outside ends of the Oreo cookie and I, I got to where I'd twist them just right and it left that little cream center just perfect on there. And then I would eat the little cream center, right? And I would throw the little ends away. I just kind of came to the Oreo cookie and took what I wanted and left the parts that I didn't want. Or it's like the Lucky Charms where you only take the marshmallows, Right? Well, friends, this is, not, this is not how Jesus intends for us to relate to him, to take the parts that we like and leave the parts that we don't. Either you will have all of Jesus and he will have all of you, or he will have none of you. Jesus doesn't do very well with compartments. He doesn't just want your Sunday compartment. He wants all of you because he died for all of you. Now, the first point is this from verses 13 and 14. Presumption kills humility. In other words, presuming upon God, coming to Him as if we, we can just presume upon Him, that we can just uh, uh, assume that He owes us a predictable, nice life and we're really in the captain's chair and, and He exists for our pleasure. This kind of presumption, it kills humility. And friends, this is a problem because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Look back in verses 13 and 14. He says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town. Look at the confidence. We will go. We'll go into such and such a town and we'll spend a year there and we'll trade and, and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. It reminds us of Proverbs 27, which says this, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Friends, have you ever had your lives upended in a day? Have you ever had something that just had, it, di it didn't develop over the course of a week or two weeks or, or three months? It, it, one day you got a phone call or you got a bad report or you had an accident or you heard some news and in one day your life was upended. The proverb says, don't boast about tomorrow because you do not know what a day may bring. But these people that James He's talking to these people don't seem to understand this. They, they're very prideful. They're presumptuous. They presume upon God and they, they say this today or tomorrow. In other words, it doesn't matter when I'll decide. I'll decide when I leave. I'll decide when I stay. I'll decide when I do X, Y, or Z. It sounds like a Dr. Seuss book. I'll, you know, do it in the morning. I'll do it in the evening. I, I'll do it whenever I can. Sam, I am or something like that. He says, today or tomorrow, in other words, whenever I want, I'm in the driver's seat here. I'm behind the wheel. 
He says, we will go to such and such a town. We'll go wherever we want to. We, and we will do it. And we will be successful there. We will go to such and such a town. We will spend a year there. In other words, not only do I have confidence about what will happen tomorrow, I think that I can see into the future about a year off down the road. We'll spend a year there. We will. And we will trade. And we will make a profit. In other words, even our success is guaranteed. We will trade. We will make a profit. One commentator that I read put it, put it best here. He said, Here are a people, says James, who are deliberate and self-confident planners. They decide where they will go, when they will go, and how long they will stay. Moreover, they are quite sure about the outcome of all of these plans. They will make money. Now, friends, of course, it's wise to plan for the future. I think God has called us to be good stewards of our time. He's called us to be good stewards of our money. It's probably a good idea to be saving for retirement. It's probably a good idea to be planning for the future. But the reality is this. This is not what these people are struggling with. They're not having some kind of problem with, with how they can best take care of what God has given them. They're having a problem because they are prideful. And I would say this. If our own self-sufficiency our own power, our own ability, uh, ability, our own confidence is really large. If these things are really large in our lives, our confidence, our power, our ability, we won't be able to see around those things to get a picture of God's goodness. You see, because God wants to provide for you. God wants to be your good shepherd. God wants to be the one who gives you what you need. He wants to give you the daily bread. And if, if your vision of your own ability is really large, you're not going to be able to see around it to see the God who desires to be that for you. So, we need to approach God with a kind of humility. He wants to provide for us. He wants to show us a more fulfilling way. He wants to redirect our lives and our goals toward better ends, better than we can come up with on our own. Presuming that, that we've got this, that we are the masters of our faith. It's nothing but an obstacle in the way of our worship of God. This is why so much of, uh, I think, the self-confidence Christianity is actually kind of harmful. And don't get me wrong, dwelling on untrue things that just leave you kind of depressed all the time, that, that's not healthy. But I think, if we're, I think if we're honest with ourselves, I hear a lot of this on Christian radio and I, I hear a lot of this among Christian circles. We, we tend to try to encourage people by telling them to look at themselves and how good they are instead of telling them to look at Christ and how good He is. In other, in other words, it says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? He says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God. That's where God says our center of confidence should be. Not in self, not in our own abilities, not in who we are, but in who Christ is. In other words, so when you need to encourage someone, when you need to encourage someone, don't tell them you are enough. Instead, tell them Christ is enough. He has what it takes. He is more than enough and He has promised to never leave you or forsake you. 
In other words, such is the confidence that we have through Christ. Not that we are sufficient. Sufficient is just a big word for the word enough. Not that we are enough, but our sufficiency is from God. So when you need to encourage someone, don't tell them, hey, you got this. Instead, tell them, Christ has got you. Instead, tell them, you are in Christ. And God has ordained before the foundation of the world that all those who are in Christ, He he will never allow the enemy to snatch them, to pluck them out of God's hand. This is why, also, this is why we rest. This is why we give and we're generous with our money and with our time. It's why God has called us to rest and why he's called us to be generous. Because through these two actions, we demonstrate to God that we believe he can provide for us. I can take a whole day off of work because God is my provider. I can be generous with my money and with my time because God is my provider. I don't have to be self-sufficient. I can be God-sufficient. He is sufficient. He is enough. And He will provide. So, that's the first point. Presumption. Presuming upon God. It kills humility. And that's a problem because the humble, the humble are the ones who are accepted before God. Secondly, humility brings peace. Humility brings peace and rest. In other words, if you think that it all depends on you, you will get tired very, very quickly. But if God is your source of rest and and you are humbly seeking to follow Him and obey Him, that brings a kind of rest and a kind of peace that is just otherworldly. Remember, he says this in in verse 14. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Remember earlier in James, remember when he said that, that that there's a wisdom that comes from above, right? What does it mean to live wisely? Well, it means living your life as if you are not your own. It's actually foolish to think that you are the master of your fate, that you are the captain of your soul. And Christians know better. God, we ought to live in such a way that God is really, truly, functionally our Lord. Remember when he said, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and let the rich boast in his humiliation? And in chapter 1 he said, like a flower of the grass he will pass away. Friends, we are here for a moment And then we are gone. And the things that we have stored up here will go to someone else one day. We've only one life to will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. In Luke chapter 12, perhaps you still have a finger there. Luke chapter 12 uh, tells us a story. Jesus is recounting a story to us. In verse 13, it begins this way, Luke 12, 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man, it produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? 
And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night, this very night, your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Friends, the reality is this. It's actually quite tiring to live as your own Lord. Setting your own agenda, attempting to, to manage an unpredictable future. So James, James suggests this. Let God be God. Get down off of his, off of his throne in your own heart, unseat yourself, and let God be God because this kind of humbling of yourself, it actually brings rest. Listen to the words of Psalm 131. It says it's a very short psalm. I'm going to read all of it. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with, myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and for forevermore. In other words, having a Lord, having a God who is not you, and who is good and loving, that brings a rest. It brings a peace of soul. The alternative is, is, is trying to manage an unpredictable future without a good Lord. Managing an unpredictable future is a lot easier if you aren't your own Lord and Master. If your life belongs totally to you and your desires and your wishes and your preferences and your agenda, if those things are in the driver's seat, it's going to be terribly difficult to manage change and to manage disappointment and to manage loss. But, but, if God is in the driver's seat, if you've given Him the keys to be Lord of your life, then every disappointment and every delay and every loss and every change, it can, it can in some way make sense. You get to view it, you get to view it through the lens, through the frame of God's will and His desires. You know, I hesitate to, to, to use stories from my own life, but sometimes they're, the, they're just the ones that come to mind. I've told some of you the story of a few years ago, um, you know, Whitney and I, we left a, we left a, a ministry position that was very comfortable in, in Charlotte, North Carolina, and, and we moved in order to become a part of a church that was very good at sending missionaries. They had done that a, a number of times, and I had a lot of support there, and we were about to go. We were making plans. We spent about two and a half to three years getting ready. Uh, for this for this move to Peru, and we had everything laid out. We knew where we were going to live. We had a had a place rented, uh, ready to go, and we had a a language teacher lined up uh, there. We began to sell some of our possessions and and some of our furniture. I sent it off on the back of a trailer. Some guy from Facebook Marketplace came and and bought a lot of that. And uh, we just had to get on the other side of, of delivering our second child, you know, Judah. 
And that time came, and, and we had him you know, in our home for just a number of days before we realized you know, there's, there's, there's a problem here. And we took him to the, to the doctor, and the doctor said, I've got, I've got a room. I'm going to call right now. I've got a room ready for you in the hospital, the children's wing at Greenville, and you need to drive straight there. They'll, they'll know what to do when you get there. And over the next 48 hours... We were in consultation with a number of different doctors who have specialties that I can't even pronounce. And one doctor was a believer. He went to a like-minded church there in Greenville. And so he, we told him of our plans. Like, listen, a couple months, a few months. We're, I mean, we, we're getting ready to move. Like, everything is good except for the plane tickets. And he looked at us and he said, a man who himself volunteered much of his time. He's a urologist. He volunteered much of his time at a, at a hospital in Kenya, a Christian hospital in Kenya that I'm also familiar with. And, and he said, I understand why you want to go. And I understand the call. But there's just no way at all that you can right now. And so we looked at one another and we said, I guess our plans are about to change. And we began from the hospital room looking for ministry positions here in the States where our son could be near the specialist that he need to be near. And I was tempted. I was tempted in those days to wonder, to question God's goodness. Why had, he been, why had he allowed me to feel sidelined for three years? Are these years wasted now? I've just spent spinning my wheels, spinning our wheels as a family. It took a while, but I came to recognize that if my life is really not my own, then the details don't really matter. Because all we're here to do is to pour ourselves out for the glory of a God who is worth it all. And because He has the keys, He can do whatever with me that He desires. And who am I to stand in judgment of His ways? This is the kind of pride that these people had. They said, today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town. We've got our plans. We've got our tickets purchased. We've got our, our things sold. And we will go there and we will make a profit and we'll stay for this period of time. And whenever we want to come home, we'll come home. But God looks at this attitude and He says, fool, you're living as if you are the owner and the master of your own life. I purchased you. I own the rights. So just submit to me because I guarantee you my plan is better. That's what God says. So friends, I pray that I would be a pastor and that we would be a church that gives the keys over to Jesus and says our lives are not for our pleasure. Our lives are intended for your glory. And that's the third point. It is this. The third point is this. Get out of the driver's seat. Get out of the driver's seat. It says this in verses 15 and 16 of James chapter 4. 
Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and we will do this or that. Notice the change of attitude. If the Lord wills, we will live. And in other words, we will live. In other words, if the Lord wills, we will die. But if the Lord wills, we will live. And, and then we will do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. This, this new attitude that, that has given the keys over to God, that has said, God, you can be my Lord, it's no longer focused on presumption. It's focused on this, the will of God, whatever He desires. I'll submit to that. Whatever He desires, it may be painful, but it will be good because it comes from His hand. Listen to Psalm 103. It says this. It's a great passage that I read from uh, earlier. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone. Its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to children's children. One of the reformers said about Jesus and His apostles, they said, they said this, they had it as a principle fixed in their minds that they would do nothing without the permission of God. Friends, what our lives would look like, I wonder what they would look like if we, if we woke up every morning having this principle fixed in our minds that we would do nothing without the permission of God. Our lives belong to Him. We will pour them out. We will faithfully do our jobs, not as a means to, to feed our own pleasure and our own designs, but, to, but as a means to, to pour ourselves out for His glory and the advance of his gospel. It changes the way you manage your time. It changes the way you manage your vacation. It changes the way you manage your finances. It changes the way that you educate and nurture your kids. And here's why we need to get out of the driver's seat. Because Jesus alone satisfies. Jesus alone Satisfies. Remember in Psalm 103, that same psalm that's so beautiful because it says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. That same psalm, right? In that same psalm, it says, he satisfies you with good. Jesus doesn't simply want to forgive you of your sins. He does want to do that. And friends, if you are here today and you have never laid hold of that, I, I, I'm begging you, I'm begging you to respond to Jesus today. To say, Jesus, take my bad life and give me your good life so that I can be at one and at peace with God. I pray that would happen. But Jesus also wants to do more. He wants to satisfy you. He wants to wean you off of the sugar and give you the filet mignon. He wants to satisfy you with something better. It says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. There's a poem. It's called Invictus by William Ernest Henley. And it says this. I want you to listen to this. Listen to the pride, the hubris. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods there may be for my unconquerable soul. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. 
Friends, the world does not understand the kind of lordship that Jesus beckons us to. He beckons us to a lordship that says, you give me the keys and I promise you I will never let you down. I may take you through painful days, but it'll always be good. The world doesn't understand the kind of lordship. The world believes in a lordship. A lordship of self. You are the master of your fate. You are the captain of your soul. But the catch is this. Freedom, purpose, life, all of these things are found in losing yourself in order to get Christ. They come only through Christ. Mark chapter 8, reading again what was read earlier. Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, in other words, whoever gives the keys over, whoever loses himself for my sake and for the gospel's sake, will save it. For what would it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? What can a man gain in return for his soul? Christian, do you mentally believe that Christ is your Lord, but, but practically you live as if you are your Lord? I just want to humbly, lovingly beg you. To, I want to call you back to embrace the life that Christ offers. Confess to Him today that you are ready to give Him the keys and to follow Him wherever He might lead. Perhaps you're here today and, and if you're honest, you just have to admit that your whole life, your whole life has been one story, one long sustained story of you being in the driver's seat of your life. You've never given Christ the keys. He's never really been Lord. You've always been in charge. Well, friends, Jesus offers a glorious exchange. At the cross, He spilled His blood for you so that He could take the punishment for your sins, but so that He could also take control of your life and give you a better path. Anyone who by faith trust in Christ can have, yes, forgiveness of sins, but also can have a good and wise master. And friends, this is an exchange that you would never, ever regret. Would you pray with me? God, I ask that today you would move on us as individuals, you would move on us as a church, that we would be people and that we would be a body that has a Lord, that has a God, and that Lord and that God is not us. That that Lord and that God is you. That we have forfeited our, uh, what we think are our rights. We have forfeited them. We've given the keys over to a good and loving master. Why? Because you call us out of living for self and you call us to live for a better purpose, namely the glory of God. I pray that our lives will be directed toward that purpose. I pray that if there's someone here today who, who recognizes that they've never had Jesus as Lord, that today would be the day of salvation, that they would come and they would talk to me and that they would ask, how can I, how can I experience this great exchange? How can I, 
How can I uh, give Jesus all of my badness and take all of His goodness and be at peace with God finally? How can I have Christ? I pray that today for them would be the day of salvation. Pray these things in the name of Jesus and for His sake. Amen.